good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, uh, Hannah and Ethan, for leading us. And I couldn't think of a, just a better tie-in to this week's theme. Um, and in chapel this week, we're going to be talking about entering the Lenten season. And uh, today I have the privilege, the honor of kicking us off and sharing with you um, a bit of kind of my story and what God's done in my life, but also from one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be hearing from a local pastor, Paul Calvin, who's an Anglican pastor at a church here in the Twin Cities. Wednesday, we're actually going to be having an Ash, uh, Ash Wednesday service here. Uh, Thursday, prayer chapel, and then Friday, um, we will be celebrating our week as we uh, continue to worship together uh, through the avenue of music. And so um, just as, as we're kind of getting started this morning again, um, I just want you to remind you of something and that we're going to kind of tease out today. And I want you to tell it to somebody next to you and uh, turn to the person next to you and say, did you know God is pursuing you? pursuing you, every single one of you, and that is why you're here this morning, and uh, you're here on purpose, you're here for a reason, here for a purpose, not just for chapel credit, something so much greater, something so much better, and um, just a little bit again about this week entering the Lenten season, Lent is a time in the church calendar that's traditionally the 40 days preceding leading up to Easter Sunday. And it's, a, it's an intentional, voluntary time of consecration and preparation. It's a time that's marked by sacrifice that's motivated not out of guilt, not out of a legalistic mindset, but out of love as we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, really for the greatest moment in history where Jesus died on the cross for our sin and he rose again from the dead. And this is, some, this is a season that's something for everyone. It's not just to be earmarked for one particular church stream or one a background or another. And uh, this, this morning, uh, my heart is to um, send us off into a season uh, of a time of voluntary consecration in preparation towards the pursuit of God. And so what I want to do is I want to bring us to um, a life-altering, uh, life-changing uh, chapter of the Old Testament that gives us priceless clarity over our lives. And I want to ask you this question that we're going to tease out today is what is one new thing that you can do this season to make Jesus the one thing that you pursue above all else? What is one new thing you could do this Lenten season to make Jesus the one thing that you pursue above all else? And maybe is there anything in particular that God is calling you to stop doing in order that you can start doing this new thing to make Jesus the one thing, to make space for that to actually happen. And so um, Psalm 27 is going to come up on screen, and just out of honor and reverence for the amazing Word of God, would you just stand to your feet along with me, and I want to read this for us and pray, and then we're going to jump in. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer him his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will, make, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Oh, God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So, Father in heaven, I pray that in these next moments that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, arrest our affections, that you would captivate our attention, and that you would reset the trajectory of our lives towards a pursuit of Jesus Christ above all else. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the truth of this psalm, from this text we just read, surprisingly interrupted me during a season of life that was extremely difficult and painful. And it was kind of a, one of those desert seasons in life. God felt distant. Spiritually, I felt really dried up. And I was actually in the middle of uh, in my rust bucket of a car that I had at the time. And uh, it was my sophomore year. I was a student here at Northwestern. And I, it was a hot, hot uh, July, uh, like Saturday afternoon, and I was stuck in traffic. So my AC didn't work because I had one of those four by four ACs, right? Four, four windows down, 40 miles per hour to get the breeze going. So I couldn't do that. And I was on my way to a physical therapy appointment trying to treat a herniated disc in my back. And I was driving a manual. I don't know if you know about a manual, but obviously in traffic, it's like the worst time to drive a manual because it's clutch in, clutch out, clutch in, clutch out. And every single time I pressed the clutch in, I had shooting pain down my leg. I'd feel it in the tingling in my toes. And so every time, and I was just, just reeling in pain. And on top of all that, my gas tank was on E. So it was like a perfect representation of like what my life with the Lord was like at this moment. And I had been told at this point that one of the things that I loved doing most was playing sports. I was on the football team. And things were going. I felt like things were finally going well for me. And then this injury hit. And I was told you'll never be able to play football again. You, running and act, activity will never be a, a part of your, of your lifestyle again. And so I was trying everything that I possibly could. I was going to appointment after appointment, seeing doctor after doctor, going to therapy after therapy. I was on one of these, these routes of therapy, and I was just trying to find something to take my mind off the pain, off the frustration, off the difficulty. I opened my glove compartment and off pop, uh, popped out a disc that my friend had given me of a message from some guy I'd never heard before, but on it it just said one thing. Whatever. So I slammed it in the, in, the, in the CD player. And right away, there's this preacher comes on, and he starts talking about Psalm 27. And he's, and he's yelling, and he's screaming, and he's super passionate. And to be honest, I was not encouraged. I was annoyed. 
I was immediately critical. I'm like, who is this guy? I'm like, he sounds funny. He's got a weird accent. Like, he's all, and, and it did not help the situation. And I'm sitting there just enduring, listening to this message, hopefully not the way that you're feeling right now in chapel, but he's just sitting there trying to get, I'm just sitting there trying to get through. And literally all of a sudden, it was like the very presence of God invaded the cabs of my car. And I'm sitting there and I am still in pain. I, I'm still frustrated. I'm still, I'm still not pulled off yet to get gas in my car. And all of a sudden, something began to change. And I've ever heard the phrase that passion is something that is more caught than taught. I wasn't really listening to what he was saying. I wasn't really following his train of thought. But something began to catch in my spirit. And God encountered me in the middle of traffic, in the middle of a desert season, by the way, that I didn't choose to go into, but I didn't realize at the time that the Lord was leading me into it. Honestly, at that point in my life, Jesus was just one of the things that I was going after. He was just one of my priorities. He wasn't the one thing that I was going after. And you see, the Lord invaded my grouchy attitude with his grace. He, he invaded my pain with a new perspective. And I walked out of that time, my circumstances didn't change, but my character began to change. And this psalm, and the truth in this psalm, and what I want to share with you this morning, literally reset the trajectory of my life. And what's interesting and what's po so powerful about this uh, psalm is that it also comes and arises out of a difficulty in the life and in the, in the, in the, in the ministry and the calling of King David. And, and, and if we were to look at the, the overall context of this chapter, we could see that from the life of David that he, um, we don't know for sure at this point what was going on, but likely he was anointed king. So he knew that he had future honor and wealth and popularity and significance and, and authority and, and, and uh, possessions. Um, we knew that he was shut out of the house of the Lord. He had enemies and adversaries that were pursuing to take his life. We had that even his own family was rejecting him. He, he was shut out of God's presence among his people, so he was out away from the tabernacle, away from public worship. And yet out of, out of this difficult, dark context, this desert season, this heart cry of David emerges. And, 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 and what's so powerful about this, and this emerges here in Psalm 27, it reaches its apex in Psalm 27, verse 4. And uh, it, says, it says this, he, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. So here's the amazing thing. Out of all the things that David could ask for, it wasn't to quicken his path to kingship. It wasn't that his enemies would be obliterated. It wasn't that his pain would be relieved. It was that he was saying, Lord, I desire you. I desire you. And he's saying all of David's affections are bound up in this one thing. And you see here that at the, David is having a single-minded pursuit. And this idea of this one thing, he says that this is one thing that he's not only asking for, but he's also seeking. So we see here that desire and action work together towards a singular pursuit. That David's holy desire led him to resolute action. It wasn't just something that he was going to talk about. It wasn't just something that he was going to think about. It was something that he was actually going to put intentional time and energy and I don't know about you, but I, this is a good question to think about. Is there a gap between, between in your life between what you declare, what you value, 
versus what you demonstrated every day. You just simply talked about having a desire for God and a passion for Him and a knowledge of His Word and you seek to Him after you seek after Him, or is it something we're actually doing and living out authentically and so I, I love the words of Charles Spurgeon. He wrote that divided aims tend to distraction, weakness, disappointment, but the person of one pursuit is successful. And what I want to do is I want to pull out three key verbs in this one verse and pull in the context of the rest of, of the chapter. And the three ones are this, dwell, gaze, and inquire. And these, are, these are like three chords woven into a single strand that can be three intentional actions that we could take this next season, this next Lenten season, in order for Jesus to become the one thing that we pursue above all else. So the first chord is this. He says, dwell, I like to put it this way, pursue his presence. To pursue his presence. By the way, these are alliterized, not just because I got infected with the alliteration allergy because I went to Bible school or seminary. This is just something to help us remember, okay? So I'm not trying to sound cute or trite here, but to think about it, if we pursue his presence. David put it this way, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And this word dwell here means to remain, abide, settle in, endure, inhabit, sit down, be still. There's no hurry here. It's saying, I, 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 I am going to literally take up my residence here. I am going to plant and grow roots here. And so this idea of to dwell, this is where you're making your living. And he says where? In the house of the Lord. And ultimately, the house of the Lord or tent, tabernacle, this is referring to that physical place that the Lord established as to be a meeting place where his presence would inhabit his people. And so, so David here is saying that I, I, I'm going to go after God's presence. I want to simply be with him. And, and what I love in verse 5, and he continues on, he says that this, he says that he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will co conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. He says that he will hide me, that it's in God's presence that David longed to be in times of trouble. That the very presence of God was David's refuge. Whatever you run to in a time of trouble, that's, that's your refuge. That, that is your stronghold. David is saying, that is where I'm, I'm wanting to go. It's in God's presence that he will find his protection. And you look at in the, in the, the framework of the tabernacle, the very center and the focus of that was the Holy of Holies, where the pure manifestation of God's glorious presence would, would be dwelling, that holy men of old wouldn't even dare to go in there but one time a year. And when they did, the great high priest would do that. They would tie a cord around him, lest he would be strike dead from the utter sheer, unabated holiness of God. So if, if holy men of old wouldn't dare go into that place, what chance does David's enemies stand? So he said, I'm going to hide my, he hides me. He hides me in his presence. And he says, he will conceal me, that he will conceal me. That, that this is, again, another idea of protection, that this is, this is where I'm simply going to camp out. I'm going to make my fort in God's presence, and I'm going to hang out here. This is where I long to be more than any place else. And then he says this, that he will lift me. He will lift me high upon a rock. Here's the idea, is that in God's presence, we also not only find protection, but we also find the renewed strength. 
Because so often we view God through the lens of our circumstances rather than viewing our circumstances through the lens of God. And so in God's presence, we are lifted up to actually see things from his vantage point. And that changes everything. And so it's David. David is saying here that in God's presence, that is where he finds his protection. That is where he finds his perspective. But yet the key here to seeking or pursuing after God's presence is this. In verse 8, we see that God is the initiator, not us. In verse 8, he gives this corporate call. Seek my face. No, me, no, no more said than done. And David immediately responds with the personal uh, cry, Your face, Lord, do I seek. And one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, I know I quote him all the time. My dog's named after him, so uh, I just I feel a responsibility to quote him. So here it is. He had a right when he said that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. We pursue God because and only because he first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. You see, seeking God's face, our response is we're seeking his face for who he is versus his hand for what he can do for us. And so often we seek his hand for what he can do for us, and if we do that, sometimes we we totally miss his face. But if we seek God's face for who he is, he's glad to open his hand. And so his, his face represents his, his person, his identity, what he is like. And so God's presence, and he loves it, he says this, all the days of his life. David wants to develop a holy preoccupation with the presence of God. You know what it's like to be preoccupied? You ever been with someone who's preoccupied? How about this? You ever been with someone who's preoccupied, and they're looking on the phone, and they're looking at Facebook, right? Or something, or something on the phone? They're just, they're total, they're just not there, Right? Okay. By the way, Facebook is called Facebook for a reason, right? Because what, what do you hope to see in a person's profile? Picture of their face, right? You see a picture of their knee, their, their cool shoes, right? You're like, hold on, I don't know who this person is. Okay, it's called Facebook for a reason. And so this idea is that you, uh, uh, if someone's preoccupied, they're just kind of checked out. I would venture to say that if you have a holy preoccupation with the presence of God, that is the thing that actually allows you to be the most present with people. Because you recognize that I'm not the only one standing here with you. The very presence of God is with you. And what's amazing is that in 2 Samuel 7, God would tell David to build him a house to dwell in. And it would end up being Solomon that would do that, the temple. But later on, God would tell his uh, son of David, Jesus, the son of God, to build him a house, a spiritual one to dwell in. Because he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. And so this idea is David is setting a trajectory saying, I want to go after God's presence. And the more that we do that, the more that we do that, the more we get to know him, then that leads us to the next thing. What do we do? That we can, uh, the next part here is cherish his character. The second core, cherish his character. David put it this way, to to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I love that. The word gaze means to perceive, to contemplate with pleasure, to have a vision of. And here's the thing, if we were to merely ask and answer this question of Psalm 27, who is God? We could develop a long running list of God's beautiful attributes. In verses one, in one of the places that I look, we look at that, 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 that God is a light, he is salvation, he's a stronghold, he's strength, he's gracious, he's faithful, uh, he is good, he is, he, he is a protector, he's a preserver, all these different things. 
But I love, that, I love this in the way that David personalizes it. He says in, verse, uh, in verses 1 through 3, he says, Not the Lord is a light, and the Lord is salvation. That's, that's, that's good. It's true. But that's not good theology. Good theology, he's saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And for the idea of the Lord to say my light, that's very, taking God's presence is, is, is a light that pierces the darkness and the difficulty of our lives so that we can see things from his perspective. In other words, the Lord is my light means the Lord is my sight. That is, that is the way that I'm going to view and perceive what's happening around me. He's saying the Lord is my salvation. That means that the Lord is his very life. He is his only hope. The Lord is my stronghold. We've already talked about the Lord is my protector. The Lord is the one whom I am going to derive strength from. So he's our sight. He's our life. He is our strength. And here's the thing. David doesn't just know about God. He's speaking from personal experience. And he goes back and he talks about this. It's saying when evildoers assail me to eat at my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart's not going to fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Because he knows who his God is. And he knows that he belongs to him. And he knows that he is with him. And here's the thing. I want to ask us this question. Are we truly gazing, staring at the beauty of God? Or are we just willing to kind of give it a glance every now and then when it's convenient? So this is what I want to invite you to do. This next season, what if you were to develop three different things to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to perceive his presence? That you develop a time, a place, and a plan. So you look at the when, look at the what, and the how. And you say, I'm going to meet with the Lord every single day during this Lenten season. And that I'm I'm going to consecrate an actual space and a time. And I'm going to open the word and I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of God. And here's the thing, we become like what we behold. And so when the Lord, we behold our life, just like our life will follow our eyes gaze, like when we're driving. Okay, if we're driving like this, right, we're going to crash. We view through the windshield, right? And so that is where we are setting our heart's gaze to, is the very character of God, to cherish his character. And the, and, the, and, the, and the next chord is this, is to walk in his wisdom. David puts it this way, and to inquire in his temple. Here again, temple, talking about the place where God's presence is. So this is permeating this whole verse this whole chapter, the very life of David, we hear the word inquire means to inspect, admire, to search out, to consider. In verse 11, David calls the Lord as his teacher and leader. He says to teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He's not saying, Lord, it's not, it's not a cry for comfort, but it's, it's, it's saying, Lord, I want to keep moving forward. And I'm, I'm not going to allow anything to, to distract me. I'm not going to allow my enemies to disrupt me. I'm going to keep going after you with a single-mindedness pursuit. In verse 13, I love that he says this. That he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Notice that our faith pre, uh, uh, precedes sight. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the last point I want to I draw out here is that walking in God's wisdom is directly connected to waiting for the Lord. He says this, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait for the Lord. And I love it, one of the ideas, the Hebrew word here for wait, has, it's, it's, it's not 
it's not, a, it's not a passive inactivity, just kind of waiting around, twirling your thumbs, waiting for God to do something. It's an intentional weaving together like you would a cord or a strand, like we're doing with these points here. It's, it's, it's like you're actually coming so close, you're, bas- it's, it's, you're actually becoming one with the Lord. And so David here had to wait. You know what's so interesting is that in the life of David, 1 Samuel 16, he gets anointed king. 1 Samuel 17, he takes out the giant Goliath. 1 Samuel Samuel 18, he becomes not king, right? That's not the next step. He has to wait another 15 to 20 years, and he goes through a difficult, dark, desert season where his life is literally being pursued by a demon-possessed king who is bloodthirsty and who is self-centered and and is not trying to cling to the throne that ultimately is going to go to David. And David has to wait. And here's the thing. We don't like to wait. But, but, but the Lord will often lead you in to a season of waiting. Not just to endure that season so that you can get to what you're waiting for, because what happens while you're waiting is just as important, if not more important, than what you're waiting for. If God's making you wait, he's making you ready. He's making you ready for something more. Waiting is one of God's greatest tools to cultivate intimacy with his people. And so that way we can be strong and take courage that sometimes the pathway to desiring god is through the desert sometimes the pathway to delighting in god more is through difficulty don't waste a season of testing that the lord is is, just might be wanting to use to cultivate a deeper intimacy with you don't waste a season of waiting uh don't waste a season in the wilderness by whining embrace it by waiting And, and intentionally go after the lord and to pursue him actively engaging in a singular pursuit Pursuing his presence and cherishing his character and walking in his wisdom. So I want to ask you this question again. What is one thing you need to let go of this Lenten season in order that you can lay a hold of Jesus as the one thing above all things that you need?